Welcome to The Referral. I'm Dr. Curran, your friendly neighborhood NHS surgeon, and this podcast is your weekly pit stop where we cover various aspects of your health. We talk about how to improve your sex life, how to have a better poop, improve your gut health, your sleep, your dental health, skincare routine, and much, much more. We talk to expert guests to give you actionable evidence-based information to improve your life and your health. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about something which absolutely terrifies me. I've seen a lot of stuff in hospital and this still frightens the life out of me. It's dementia and Alzheimer's. There are millions and millions of people all over the world who live with dementia and with Alzheimer's, but there's also a significant proportion of those people who don't have a diagnosis. If someone has Alzheimer's, it is a scary, progressive, inevitable decline into neurodegeneration, but there is some hope. There are new drugs out there which could potentially turn the tide against Alzheimer's. To get some evidence-based strategies into how we can improve our brain health, but also talking about Alzheimer's and dementia and future perspectives, I am talking to Dr. Ema McSweeney, who is a consultant neuroradiologist, and she's a global authority and expert on Alzheimer's. We've had two pandemics in my living memory. One is Alzheimer's and one is COVID. It's the importance of presenting or identifying these symptoms when they're very mild. Without question, what goes on in the gut is hugely influencing the brain and vice versa. A bit later, I'll be answering your questions in crowd science. Now, remember, if you've got a question that you want featured on this podcast, feel free to get in touch at theresurralpod.com. And if you're interested in even more deep dives into some of the questions you guys ask me and for ad-free listening of all the episodes of the podcast so far, you can subscribe to The Referral Plus. All you need to do is visit The Referral Show page on Apple Podcasts and hit the Try Free button to begin your free trial today. So, Dr. Ema McSweeney, Alzheimer's, dementia, these things terrify me. Tell me a little bit about why you're here and what you do. So I'm founder and CEO of Recognition Health, um, which is a UK and US company, which is specifically designed to manage conditions of the brain and mind. So provide early accurate diagnosis and treatment. And there's a number of different areas for children and for adults, neurodevelopmental, traumatic brain injury, and progressive neurodegenerative diseases. But as I know today, we're focusing on Alzheimer's disease. And we treat patients with Alzheimer's disease, not only with um, clinical practice, but also the opportunity for those individuals to come into clinical trials where they get new diagnostic techniques to accurately diagnose their condition and new treatments designed to try to slow further progression of this disease and effectively in so doing change people's future because yes it is a frightening disease today. You know a lot of people seem to think dementia equals Alzheimer's which isn't the case. What does Alzheimer's mean to you on a biological sense? So uh, Alzheimer's disease is a condition which is defined by its biomarkers, it means that an individual has developed abnormally elevated levels of toxic amyloid protein and tau protein in their brain. And those toxic proteins are destroying their cognitive brain cells. Um, furthermore, this disease is progressive. And as these proteins destroy more and more brain cells, the individual develops the symptoms of dementia. 
dementia is just an umbrella term, yeah. like headache or abdominal pain or something. Now, what is important is that as we all grow older and age is the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's disease is actually by far and away the most common cause of memory problems and other related cognitive symptoms. Now, lots of surveys have demonstrated that about 80% of people in the general public do recognize short-term memory loss as a presenting and prominent feature of Alzheimer's disease. But actually, there's lots of other symptoms as well. So difficulty with mm -hmm. calculation, using more generic words instead of specific words. So saying the thingy or um, just, just shrinking of one's vocabulary. And in addition to that, it's things like repeating oneself, it's getting lost in a familiar environment, and all of these symptoms, of which there are many more, decision-making, et cetera, they all present very gradually. And in the early stages, it's not possible to say just by talking to somebody, it's not possible to determine that the problem that they have or the disease that they have is Alzheimer's disease. So yep. my question is... What can we do apart from, you know, you've said, obviously, memory loss is a potential symptom of Alzheimer's, but memory loss could be a symptom of a number of things, traumatic brain injury and all sorts. Yeah. So in a person who is in their 30s and 40s and maybe even 20s when the biological process of toxic protein accumulation could occur, assuming they have got an adequate sleep, an adequate diet and an adequate exercise, they may still develop Alzheimer's you know, despite yeah. all of those things being optimized, how can a person in their 30s who knows that it's developing decades before their 60s, yeah. how, how do they know that they're going to get <laughs> yeah. Alzheimer's? Okay, so I think, you know, that's one of the imponderables in so much as that the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's for the general population is age. It's mm. the passage of time. And unfortunately, Currently, we don't really understand the whole aging process very well. Now, there is a huge amount of scientific work going on currently, um, which is essentially around the science of longevity. Yeah. And this is looking at proteins, it's looking at enzymes, it is looking at other sort of like, you know, potential genetic factors as well. But right now today, and I, th I think it is important that people don't become hypervigilant and sort of like obsessed with, oh my goodness, have I had just like one memory mm. lapse? The thing is that, you know, age is the biggest risk factor. Um, and if you're in your 30s or 40s and 50s, really, the most important thing is to maintain as best you can a healthy lifestyle. Um, and as we've said, of those, it's really cutting down on sugar, because that's the one thing the brain really doesn't like, um, optimizing all the other healthy foods that we know about, um, and then sleep um, and exercise are probably when, the biggest one. When you say cutting down on sugar, I mean, obviously, glucose is part of a healthy diet since the brain thrives on glucose as its primary fuel source uh, rather than anything else. When you say uh, sugar, would you be sort of more suggesting ultra-processed foods, uh, which are sort of highly manufactured mm. rather than whole foods? Uh, you know, because an, an, an yeah. apple obviously contains lots yeah. of sugar, but yeah. also it's rich in prebiotics yeah. and fibers and is antioxidant rich, which naturally would suspect you'd be, it'd be good for the brain. Yeah. So, so it is difficult, and obviously, you know, it's moderation in all things, mm. and particularly, you know, in in one's sort of like twenties, thirties, forties. 
the real problem is that the brain processes refined sugars very poorly. And in fact, even fruits, if if you mush up fruits and you put them in a fruit juice, so you mush them all up mm. in the, you know, in the liquidizer and you drink it as pure fruit, then actually there's lots of fructose in that. And that's not actually that good for you. You're much better to eat fruits as the fruit themselves, mm. because they have other things in them that help with the process of the of the sugar of the sugar metabolism, um, but generally it's it's cakes, it's sweets, it's bread, it's you know pastas, all these things that do have a lot of refined sugar in them. I'm not now, sure I could live a life without pasta well, and bread. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. it, it's you know it's just being sort of like mm. sensible, but um, it is something that actually most people who do cut down on refined sugars do actually, if you ask them. They will report that they actually do feel much sort of like smart, smarter, alert, mm. sort of just feel better. Yeah. Um, but it is complex, and it, it obviously it's not just sort of like one thing. Mm. And unfortunately, our addiction to sugar is a problem, and it sugar is incredibly addictive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the role of diet in sort of brain health, you could argue we're still learning more about it, but also in our current state of society where we've got, you know hypercalorific, yeah. hyperpalatable foods at the touch yeah. of a button from an app yeah. that's probably significantly yeah. different to what it was 40 years ago where we'd have to make our own food yeah. from scratch and it'd be yeah. more whole food. Now, yeah. when I started as a first-year doctor, I started on a geriatric ward, on the elderly care ward, and you know, I would want to say probably around 10% of those patients on a 40-bed ward probably had some form of cognitive impairment and or a formal diagnosis of dementia, whether it was vascular dementia, Parkinson's, or Alzheimer's dementia. And I noticed a lot of the medication we were giving them were just medication to treat the symptoms. And even now, just for the average person with dementia and cognitive symptoms, it's symptomatic treatment. But obviously now we've heard in the news more of these stories about these lecanemab, donanemab, all of these drugs which can change the course of the disease and potentially reverse the buildup of these toxic protein buildup and these plaques. But the worry I have about the sensationalist stories we have, a cure for Alzheimer's, if you look into the research of it, it seems to only work in early stage disease. And even then, the clinical translatability seems to be only a very modest change in cognitive scores. So are we just at the tip of the iceberg of these novel medications? And how effective can they be going forwards in reversing Alzheimer's and actually curing Alzheimer's and dementia? So interestingly, one of the comments that a lot of people in this sort of like sharp end of the research with these drugs is saying at the minute is that right now we're at the end of the beginning of the right. development of these types of medications. So the symptomatic medications on the market today are literally just trying to just get a little bit more energy out of these dying brain get cells. Get more life out of whatever's yeah. dying. But it's, not, but it's not changing the course of yeah. the disease. Now, the new medications, and the, there is actually an array of new I mean, there's a really a mm. bandwidth of new medications now. And it is, you know, the science of this is extremely interesting. But the ones you mentioned quite correctly, the lecanemab and the donanemab, that have really hit the sort of like news headlines mm. this year and sort of like a little bit last year, 
the way those drugs work is they actually have the same same or very similar mechanism of action. What they do is they get into the brain and they remove this toxic accumulation of amyloid protein from the brain. Now, if you can remove that amyloid protein from the brain, you protect the brain cells from further destruction. Mm. Now, obviously, there is a process whereby the original disease is due to the fact that we're overproducing this amyloid protein. We can't clear it quickly enough. But if we can get something in that can help to clear it, then that is going to, ideally, that will slow down further progression of disease. And the exciting thing about these new drugs is they have now been demonstrated to do that. But the other part of this story is that with any medication, as most medications are designed to do, if the purpose of the medication is to slow down further progression of disease and symptoms, then by definition, you have to give it as early as possible, Mm. particularly where you have a disease where brain cells are being killed and they can't regenerate. So, yes, you're 100% correct. It has been demonstrated, particularly in this recent study with Denanumab, what it did show was that when they took the overall group or overall cohort of people who had either very mild, mild cognitive impairment or mild AD dementia, that means their symptoms progressed a little bit further, when they took the whole group together, they found that they could slow by about 35%, the rate of progression of disease and symptoms. But when they took the people with the mildest symptoms, they slowed down the rate of progression by 60%, which is actually Mm. very significant if you're slowing, if something's very mild and you're slowing it by 60%. But also about 50% of those people had no change at all after one year. What does that mean in clinical terms? So for someone who's got Alzheimer's dementia and those cognitive symptoms, in terms of the impact on their quality of life, what does those percentages actually mean? Because often the percentages sound impressive in a study in terms of, you know, okay, 50%, 35%, but actually in terms of their cognitive improvement in a score, what does that mean? So it depends, and I know this is going to frustrate you when I say this, but it depends where you are on the cognitive decline graph, basically. So today, if somebody has Alzheimer's and they say, how am I going to be like this time next year, or slightly easier, like how am I going to be in six months' time? Obviously, like no one knows 100%, but the best way to answer that is the rate of progression gradually increases. So how you've been over the last six months is the best determinant, or how you've changed over the last six months is the best determinant of how you're going to change Mm. over the next six months. And then you have to build into that that it is going to accelerate. So if somebody really has quite advanced symptoms, Mm. you would probably say how you've been over the last month is going to determine how you've been over the next month. So for people who have very mild symptoms, you could say, well, how you've been over the last year is going to determine how you're going to be over the next year. But actually, that's where, if you're taking this mild group, what they found was that 50% of those patients hadn't changed at all Mm. in a year. So it it is all biased to where you are in your rate of, in your rate of progression of disease at that time. So it's the importance of presenting or identifying these symptoms when they're very mild. Now, it is also the case that in these studies, people who have advanced symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, which, and we can go into this, which 
are then categorized as coming under the umbrella of dementia, at that point, these these medications basically won't work because the disease has already progressed too far. And that's where symptomatic medications will always still be helpful. Hello, listeners of The Referral. It's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet, but on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to the Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. You can even try it for free. Just head over to the referral show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the Try Free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit theReferralPod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. So, you know, in terms of screening for Alzheimer's, you know, typically, I mean, what would your screening test be? I mean, MRIs to pick up someone with Alzheimer's, the plaques and all of these things in the brain tissue. Why couldn't we then, you know, for someone who's got a strong family history or presenting with symptoms, is there a role to have national screening for Alzheimer's, similar to breast cancer screening, aneurysm screening, colonoscopies? Is there a role for... You know, yearly or you know some yeah. period of brain scans. Yeah. So, so the ultimate answer to that is yes, um, because this disease is no different from any other disease. Yeah. So, in the same way as we screen for cancer or anything else. Um, and actually, if I can digress for a second, we and and other groups around the world um, are currently and in fact starting a big study in. Um, early 2024, for people who are, as much as any of us are, cognitively normal. Mm. And these individuals, obviously, they'll be age 60 and over, but these individuals will be screened to see if they have the positive biomarkers. Essentially, they'll be screened to see if they have amyloid protein in the brain, tau protein in the brain, and and other biomarkers that, that we are aware of. And the purpose of that, those studies, is for people to actually gain early access to these same types of medications if they do have elevated proteins in the brain and thereby reduce those proteins and push out or ideally prevent a time that those individuals will ever develop Alzheimer's disease and well, Alzheimer's symptoms. Yeah. Okay. So really the same as diabetes. Asymptomatic, but some positive marker. Yeah. And yeah. to prevent the onset of symptoms, full exactly stop. right. So exactly the same way as we do for you know we measure we measure blood tests for prostate cancer, or we screen for bowel cancer, or we screen for diabetes. Any of these things, Alzheimer's is no different from any other disease, and we now have identified biomarkers that can tell us if the disease is present, even though there are no symptoms. Mm. 
Now, for people with moderate advanced existing dementia without scope of ever having these medication in their lifetime, in addition to symptomatic medication therapy like we discussed, denepazil, etc., is there any role and what is the role of psychotherapy, play therapy and other forms of non-medication therapy alongside, you know, their family supporting them physically? Do those do those have roles to play in, you know, offsetting the loss of cognitive reserve and slowing down brain degeneration in some way? So it's difficult. There are a number of different things which, you know, like, it's important for for family and friends and loved ones to be aware of and and to try to do to optimize an individual's brain function and I, I can sort of like run through those but will they like actually slow down the death of the brain cells no mm. but cognition is a cognition is a sort of like a a tricky thing in so much as that even at a very simple level, um, the more one is worried and anxious about one's cognition, actually the the less, you know, the, the more it will affect the everyday cognition that individual experiences. So the, the sort of like extreme form of this is if you're doing something that's really frightening, like you're going up on the stage or something, mm. you'll suddenly forget all your lines. Mm. And that's just anxiety yeah. that has yeah. made your memory, if you like, worse. Now, in terms of sensible things that it's important to do for any family member or any individual who notices that they have cognitive symptoms. So the first one is obviously healthy lifestyle the, and, and not to be underestimated, like exercise and things like that actually do make people mm. feel better. The next one, obviously, is, is try and get into a clinical trial because that has got a chance of changing yeah. the future. And that is really, really important because that is actually the only thing that's going to make a significant difference, hopefully. The next thing really is keeping your brain really active. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, like socializing and doing all of the things that you would normally do. Mm -hmm. And very often people do become anxious. They do become self-conscious. Um, and that's totally understandable. But this disease is a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually being more relaxed about it and sharing maybe the diagnosis with some sort of like close friends and family so that people do understand and they can help with things like, um, you know, just avoiding having somebody in a really noisy room where they can't distinguish one person talking to them from other people. So maybe at a family dinner, make sure they're, they're sitting such that they're on, they're in a one more of a one-to-one -one conversation than lots of noise and different conversations. Yeah. Um, I would also say making sure that all of the things that can also affect cognition, like B12, low B12, low folate, They're all optimized. maybe being a bit anemic, maybe blood sugar being too high, you know, all of these things, thyroid function, there's lots of different things that also affect cognition that do need to be reversed and optimized. I mean, I, f I feel that obviously there's one aspect of the physical degradation of the brain that you see in dementia from the accumulation of these proteins, but also there's that emotional, psychological aspect and increased risk of depression, anxiety yeah. that we see. Yeah. And there's a, interestingly, in Japan, there's a restaurant, the yeah. Restaurant of Mistakes, where yeah. essentially most of the staff there are people, yeah. elderly members of society who suffer yeah. with dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. And 
you know, if you order something in that restaurant, yeah. they will make a mistake and you'll get the wrong yeah. item. If you yeah. ordered, um, you know, the miso soup, you yeah. might get a salmon nigiri. Yeah. And I think that's part of the charm is that they reintegrate these people with dementia who otherwise would have yeah. been socially isolated into community and into society yeah. again. Yeah. And arguably that will improve yeah. their mental health and whether on a cellular level that may or may not change the course of their disease mm -hmm. but it might improve the quality of their remaining life a hundred a hundred percent and and actually reducing anxiety is is so important because a lot of a lot of individuals get anxiety separate from and in addition to being anxious about you know particularly being in a in a social setting um, and decreasing that level of anxiety and actually educating the family mm. um, and close friends about what the individual is experiencing is incredibly helpful. I mean, I've, I've done presentations to schools to explain to, you know, like to, to like six formers and that, that, you know, because they've all got elderly relatives, etc. It's like understanding what this is, understanding it's just a condition like any other disease and understanding the the types of challenges that individuals with Alzheimer's will be facing. Because very often, unlike vascular disease, they will look complete, you know, they'll be physically completely fit and well. Yeah. Um, and also not to forget that, you know, this isn't just a, a disease that's affecting people in their, you know, like late 70s and 80s. I mean, we have lots of individuals at our recognition health clinics who are in their 50s. Um, Early onset dementia? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of called early onset, but I mean, essentially, it's just they are younger when the disease hits. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is important, particularly almost like the sort of like young you are, the more important it is to present as early as possible. One, because you want to find out, have you got something that's reversible and quickly reverse it? And secondly, if it is something that is progressive, the earlier you can get to, you know, one of these new types of treatments, the better your chances of slowing this down. So... I've also read of, you know, nowadays in the last decade, I would want to say, or maybe even slightly longer, without increasing understanding of, you know, the microbiome everywhere in the body, not yeah. just the gut and the skin, you know, its connection with the brain, the gut-brain microbiota axis, as it were. Yeah. Is there a role in the future that you see for manipulating the microbiome to manipulate the state of play in the brain, whether it's you know, changing the microbiome so you change the inflammatory proteins and chemicals in the brain, which then may cause a downstream effect to improving brain health. Is that something conceivably we can see in the future? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of like simple example that most people are aware of is irritable bowel syndrome, yeah. which is which is a brain condition, if you like. Yeah. Um, and yes, I mean, the brain-gut um, axis is tremendously important. Um, I mean, already people are doing work with autism, as you mentioned, mm. um, where they're doing fecal transplants with really quite stunning results. Um, so, like, without question, what goes on in the gut um, is hugely influencing the brain and vice versa. Um, and at a sort of like a chemical level, um, much of it sort of comes down to in inflammation, basically yeah. neuro and gut inflammation. Well, as you as you touched on, I mean, often we do prescribe antidepressants for patients with irritable bowel and they see yeah. a recession of their symptoms. Yeah. yeah. And is... even, even though, you know, like lots of people with irritable bowel will say, well, hang on a minute, I'm 
I'm not depressed. Yeah. It it's sort of like no, it's not that it's not that we actually necessarily think you are depressed. It's that the chemicals in the brain that are coding for the yeah. changes in your bowel are sort of like need to be if they are corrected, yeah. then your bowel will go back the, to behaving normally. The so antidepressant it, is acting on your gut yeah, brain. Yeah. Yeah. So we are sort of yeah, it's 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 incredibly closely linked. Do you Apart from the standard things, which would be part of a normal diet, B12, iodine, various things, which you know, omega three, which could support general health, but also brain yeah. health. Are there? Have you seen? Because as you mentioned previously, on uh, as when we we're talking, there's a growing explosion of people obsessed with longevity and anti aging, <laughs> yeah. and that's also come with lots of pseudoscientific notions about what we can supplement and what we can do to increase our yeah. lifespan. Is there any? evidence that any of these, any supplements out there, is there anything available right now that someone could buy, which is actually, hang on, that's actually probably pretty good for your brain health? It's difficult because, you know, there are a lot of, let's call them sort of like pseudoscientific or like non-scientific. And I think it mm. is really important to be sort of like super careful yeah. about these things. Um, and, and just to say, like, I'm not sponsored or anything oh, by no, these no, people, yeah, but yeah. there is a product called um, Suvenade. Um, which it's almost like a half a half food, a half drug, if you like. I mean, it, it's in a sort of like special category. That has been shown without question to really sort of like um, positively influence brain synapses. What does it contain um, chemically? So it's basically lots of different fish oils. Right. I mean, that's its main constituent. Fish oils, yeah. Yeah. So that that is a product that, you know, you, you can buy all the components of it, but, you know, you'd, you'd have a, like a big bag, a yeah. big bag of stuff. Um, I think there's lots of, there's an increasing amount of evidence for things like, you know, zinc and magnesium mm. and all these things. But to be honest, most people do have most of those things in their diet. In their diet, yeah. Um, but... Is there is there evidence now scientifically that, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't all live healthily till we're, you know, let's say at the minute they're talking about like, you know, 120. 120 yeah. yeah, I mean, there's lots of evidence that that, that should be the case. And it is really just a case of understanding um, what are the things that are going on chemically um, in the body, at, again, sort of like at a protein or enzyme level that is causing us to age. It's almost like the... The normal process would be not to age, and it's like something goes wrong that that makes us age almost. Um, so, it's not my area of expertise, but I, you know, like I can say that mm. um, there is a mm. lot of research going on in that, and it's going on mainly because, you know, it, for example, with skin, it's going on for people that have you know serious burns and grafts and things. It's going on for um, people who have illnesses and conditions that they are trying to slow down or, or reverse. So. It's it's not so much for, um, what would be the word? Um, I know just for fun, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually to treat, you know, like to treat diseases at the minute. But yes, it is. It is. I'm sure it is possible. One of the most important things I try to do on this podcast is debunk misinformation. Yeah, and I've got a couple of you know common. Alzheimer's, dementia, okay. <laughs> myths that always rear their head, uh, we can sort of tackle them. So yeah. we touched on this briefly, but one of the common myths which I see propagated everywhere is that dementia is all the same. Okay, that is not true. Yeah. As we said, dementia is an umbrella term, a bit like headache. 
there are lots of causes of dementia, so Parkinson's disease, um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which the sports injury patients get, um, Huntington's disease, yeah. Lewy body disease, frontotemporal dementia. CJD. CJD. Alzheimer's disease just happens to be the most common cause of dementia as we age. And they're quite wildly different as well. The treatment yeah. options for Parkinson's oh, is completely, completely different. different to Alzheimer's dementia. So yeah, that is definitely different. a myth. Yeah. Uh, another one is that, and this is actually for a lot of people maybe quite shocking, losing memory and confusion, people are told, is a normal part of aging. Not correct. So the simple example of that is you can see two 80-year-olds sitting having a conversation. One doesn't know how they got into the room. The other has just been doing the crossword and is sharp, bright, having a completely normal conversation. It is not true. Yeah, so it's it's maybe right to say you might be less mentally agile at yeah. the age of 90 versus 20, yeah. but you know, probably quite chronic, severe memory loss, confusion is abnormal. It is abnormal. Yeah. yeah. So if you are experiencing those symptoms, you need yeah. to get urgently probably checked yeah. out. Yeah, that's abnormal. What some people often sort of confuse as well is, it's sort of like concentration and cognitive performance. So like we all know if we're on holiday or something, you know, we may not be sort of like completely mm. concentrating or someone's talking to you about something you're not interested, so you're not really concentrating. That is totally different yeah. from not being able to recall things, forgetting details of conversations, repeating yourself unknowingly, all of these different things, not being able to make decisions. That That is abnormal. The problem that we have is it's a bit like I don't know, cataracts or arthritis, in that cataracts and arthritis are very common as we get older, mm. but they're not normal. Yeah. And it's exactly the same. Alzheimer's disease is very common. It's a pandemic, mm. um, but it's not normal. So yeah. we've had we've had two pandemics in my living memory. <laughs> one is Alzheimer's and one is COVID. Yeah. So, you know, that's how common it is. Yeah. Well, Ema, thank you so much for coming on here and being a voice of expertise and providing some science on brain health and Alzheimer's, which, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm terrified about, but I'm glad there is some, you know, optimistic tunnel where we're getting these novel drugs. So thank you again for yeah. coming on. Thank you. So Ema, before I let you go, you've got a question for me. Far away. Okay. Here's the, here's the mystery to me, is given the amount of press and media attention to Alzheimer's disease and particularly in connection with the new medications that are all over the news in terms of providing hope now and enabling us to be cautiously optimistic about new treatments for Alzheimer's. Why is it that so many people still don't really understand that this is a condition and that they need to be alerted to sort of like presenting early? That's a good question. I think there is some discordance between what people see and read and then what they digest, process and understand and how they can act on it. So I've made videos uh, about lecanemab when it first came out explaining without being sensationalist that it is a breakthrough because anything in Alzheimer's which is positive is a breakthrough no matter how small it is. So it's fantastic to see this after decades of virtually nothing. Mm. But also with a caveat that, you know, this is the beginning of lots more research. So I think, and those videos across Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, garnered millions of views. There are millions of people watching these videos and learning about lecanemab. Yeah. But then 
I find, as often you see with cancer medications that are breakthroughs, the hype dies down because the media also don't keep talking about it. So we mm. need people to keep talking about it. And, you know, as in I've worked with you previously on getting the message out there, on bringing people to these trials, raising awareness about these things. And I think it's a constant stream of information about that and people slowly migrating towards that. So I, I think there is huge scope for social media to be a, you know, almost like a, a siphoning platform to then make people aware of trials, whether it's cancer or chronic yeah. conditions like Alzheimer's, uh, but also just understanding the conditions, the symptoms, yeah. so they can present, self-present early if they notice symptoms. So there is great potential there. I still think it's being significantly underused. Yeah. No, and I, and because I think this is also a major problem currently with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it's a disease a little bit like Alzheimer's disease, which is due to the development of abnormal tau protein in the brain, which the sports players um, are developing as a result of contact sports. Mm. And, you know, to me, it's it's extraordinary that it's almost like the biggest the biggest denial ever. <laughs> it is. And because, you know, we can go into a lot of the yeah. politics about sports and money. But that's why, you know, I've got this podcast and I've got experts like yourself to come on. And hopefully, you know, the sort of millions of people watching this will gain something from that. And even if it's, you know, 100 people who go away from listening to this podcast and go and get checked out, that's a win. Yep. 100%. Thank you. And don't worry, I've not forgotten. We've got one listener question for Crowd Science. This week, it's Rachel from Southwest London. Rachel said, I have very sensitive toenails. If I ever go for a pedicure, it's excruciatingly painful rather than pleasurable. All of my toenails are thicker than my friends and have some ridges and bumps on them as well. Do you know what this might be? Now, Rachel, that is a very interesting question and I'm sure a lot of people might have a similar thing to you as well and listen carefully. So it's very difficult for me to just judge based on your brief introduction to your condition to tell you what it is exactly, but there are certain conditions which may cause a thickening of the toenail. For example, you can get a fungal infection of the toenail called onychomycosis, which can result in the toenail being slightly more painful or sensitive, especially when it's moved, and it can also be slightly thickened as well. Now, the pain you experience when you're moving your toenail, again, it could be a number of things, you know, from an ingrown toenail to an infection of the skin around the toenail. So if you are experiencing some pain and thickening and some of the signs you've mentioned, it's probably worth seeing a podiatrist or at least seeing your GP so they'll be able to physically look at your toenail and examine and figure out what the actual cause is. Great question, Rachel. And in this week's Crowd Science Extra, I'll also be answering this question from Yasmin from Leicester. She asks about apple cider vinegar and why it causes stomach upsets, especially on an empty stomach. If you want to listen to that, make sure you subscribe to Crowd Science Extra, where you can listen to my full explanation on that and various other inbox questions. And don't forget, if you've got a question you desperately want me to answer, you can get in touch at the referralpod.com. 
Okay, guys, thank you for listening to this episode of The Referral. And remember, I am a real doctor, but I'm not your personal medical physician. So please contact your own healthcare professional for any specific medical advice. And also, it's worth remembering that nothing on this show is intended to provide or replace specific medical advice that you'd otherwise receive from your own doctor. This has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery. Videos by Ryan O'Meara. Studio engineer, Teddy Riley. Music by Josh Carter. Grace Lakewood and Hannah Talbot were the producers. And Gaynor Marshall and Chris Skinner are the executive producers. Now, I know you absolutely love this podcast episode, so please go ahead and give it a five-star review. And if you love this, you're going to love even more. So hit the follow button so you can tune in to a new episode every week, and I'll see you next time.